Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week, we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Tuesday, August 1st. December 23 corn is trading down a quarter cent at 5.12 and three quarters, with new crop November soybeans trading up seven and three quarter cents at 13.39 and a half. Turning to our guest, this week it's our privilege to have Brad Rippey, a meteorologist with USDA and one of the authors of the U.S. Drought Monitor. Thanks for joining us today, Brad. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, weather is certainly one of the focal points right now as we talk about markets. It's had a big impact on market movement here as of late. So let's dive into it a little bit and and talk about some of this weather. To your trained eye, Brad, how are weather conditions shaping up for the rest of the U.S. growing season? That's the hard question. You should ask me what's already happened. I could tell you to achieve (laughs) what's going on. But seriously... It's actually a much brighter prospect than what we were looking at, say, a week or two ago when we saw this heat building into the Midwest. We've pushed that back. It's still very hot in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. But for the Midwest, where a lot of the soybeans and corn come from, it has turned much better. The only real underlying problem we still see is a lot of uh, moisture deficit. There's still considerable drought, especially in the Western Corn Belt. So we may have some trouble making up those deficits this time of year, but at least for the month of August and maybe beyond that, it looks like near or below normal Midwestern temperatures, but rainfall may be a little erratic, especially in the northern part of the Corn Belt, where it's just going to be a little bit too close to that Canadian high pressure system to bring a whole lot of moisture. So looking better, I think, from, say, Nebraska, Missouri, southeastward, but a little dry for the month of August as we move toward the Great Lakes states. So let's talk about that a little bit more, Brad. Drought's been a bit of a hot topic across most of the growing regions here this year. So the last major drought that we had in this country that kind of struck a lot of the the Midwest in particular was 2012. I guess compare and contrast this year's drought to 12. How are they similar? How are they different? Yeah, you're absolutely right. 2012 was the last time we had a real true continental scale drought. At the peak of that drought in September of 2012, we had almost two-thirds of the country of the U.S. covered by drought. Now, what's interesting is that starting in 2020 and then continuing to present, we've actually seen quite a bit of drought coverage, but it's been mostly focused across the western half of the country. And it's only this spring and early summer that we've seen drought returning to the Midwest in any significant way. So again, kind of comparing the 2012 drought with what's happened more recently, we did see a peak coverage of 63% drought in the United States as recently as autumn of 2022. But again, that's focused on a lot of the rangelands, the pasture lands that are across the western half of the country, didn't extend into corn and soybean country. So it's been a very different setup where we've been focused on the western drought the last three years. However, The timing on this Midwestern drought of 2023 has been terrible. It came on during the spring, May and June, very dry conditions developed, but it was a cool drought. So by the time we got to late June and it finally started to rain, crops weren't looking great, but they weren't looking terrible either because we didn't have the heat like we had in 2012. 
Then we had a pretty good July for the most part. It was relatively cool. We did get some Midwestern rain. And then just in the last week or so, we saw the heat building in and that and then crop conditions took a bit of a nosedive in late July with that heat. So it's been a topsy-turvy year, certainly far from perfect for corn and soybeans and for grains across the Great Plains. But if that drought had been focused further east for a longer period of time, it would have been a much bigger disaster, more akin to 2012. Sticking with the, the theme of dryness and drought, you and your team are the authors of the U.S. Drought Monitor, something that uh, certainly everyone has been anxiously watching every Thursday when it's published and comparing it to you know prior weeks, prior years. Can you tell us a little bit about the team and kind of some of the metrics behind the, the Drought Monitor? Sure. You kind of have to do a little history lesson here, and that is taking you back to, say, the latter half, the second half of the 20, 20th century, where we really didn't have a whole lot to go on in terms of drought. As much as people talked about drought, we didn't have any really good products to assess drought. Starting in the 1960s, a genius in the meteorological community named Wayne Palmer devised the Palmer Drought Index. Three years later, in 1968, he came up with the Crop Moisture Index, a derivative of the Palmer. And as we went through the 70s and the 80s, and then my career began in the late 80s, that's pretty much all we had. We had the Palmer Drought Index and the Crop Moisture Index. As we moved into the 1990s, we added a few indices like the Standardized Precipitation Index. Didn't even incorporate temperature into the index. Very valuable in areas where you don't have much data. But we got to the late 90s, and a team of us realized that we need something better to depict drought. So we knocked our heads together. And six of us created a product called the U.S. Drought Monitor that made its debut in August of 1999. It probably wouldn't have started that quickly, except that there was a big drought in the East Coast in the summer of 99, and it caught the attention of the politicians. So during a briefing at the White House in early August of 1999, the then Secretary of Commerce introduced the Drought Monitor. All of a sudden, within a week, the Drought Monitor was an operational product. And we have not missed a week since. So I've been an author since the very beginning in August of 99, coming up on 25 years next year. And the real premise behind the Drought Monitor is that it's a mathematically driven product. And it's very important to look. You look on the map and you see categories ranging from D0 to D4, D0 being abnormal dryness, and then four intensities of drought, all the way from moderate drought D1 to exceptional drought D4. We use percentile rankings to show those drought severity levels. So if you're in a D4, like we see in parts of the Great Plains right now in the Western Corn Belt, that's something you would expect to see statistically once per 50 to 100 years. Now you come down to the lower level of drought, a D1, that's something you would expect to see once every five to 10 years. So there's a huge difference statistically between D1 and D4. We throw everything we can get our hands on into a big mixer, put it all together. If we see agreement between all the different indices and, and guidance that we have, that's great. You know, everything says D2, then we've got a D2. But more often, you see a lot of discrepancies. Something will point to D1, something else will say D4. And so we have to kind of crunch all those things together, come up with the best estimate of what drought intensity is. So, you know, we could talk an hour about how the drought monitor goes together. I will say that 
we use not just in situ or observed measurements, but we also use remotely sensed data from satellite. And we use, in addition to that, modeled data. And that's extremely important when it comes to something like soil moisture. We have very few soil moisture sensors across the country. So we have to supplement that with satellite data and modeled or computer-driven data. And we try to get an accurate picture of soil moisture across the country and translate that into numbers that the public can understand from D1 to D4. It's very helpful. And uh, one of my favorite maps to look at and track drought across the U.S. So appreciate the work that you guys have done on that. Looking at other metrics that we look at this time of year in particular, there's two that come to mind. So there's accumulated stress degrees and there's accumulated growing degrees. How do those differ? So stress, if you take an individual crop, we'll just use an easy one like corn. If the temperature is above 86 degrees, if the high temperature goes above 86, then you start losing some of the optimal development that you can have for that crop. If you get above 95, you actually start adding stress to that crop. So if you look at standard growing degree days for a crop like corn, everything from 50 to 86 degrees benefits the crop in terms of being able to develop at a normal pace, corn being a tropical plant. So that's its optimal range of temperatures. Now, so standard growing degree days for a crop, there you're, you're looking at that narrow range, which is, again, 50 to 86 degrees. But if you start looking at crop stress, then you get above 95 for corn, you're going to take away yield potential. So if you look at a, a week like last week, where it was 95 to 105 degrees in the Western Corn Belt over four or five days, that certainly can knock the top off that yield potential, especially if it's coming at a critical time of development during pollination on through grain fill. So I think that's the difference that you're looking for is just growing degree days, kind of just an accumulation of above a certain threshold versus stress where you get above that threshold and you start doing damage to the crop. So let's talk about how some of the drought monitor data plays into the USDA weather data and how that impacts the potential crop condition uh, reports. Is there any interplay there at all? It's kind of interesting because if you look at the USDA reports, including the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates and the crop production, those two reports come out of different agencies. The WASD report, the supply and demand report, comes out of our office, the office of the chief economist. Then crop production comes out of the National Agricultural Statistics Service. So for part of the year, the numbers for, say, corn and soybeans come out of the WASD, and that's based primarily on yield trends. So you look you look at a trend line for, say, maybe the last 20 or 30 years. It varies by crop and, and by region. And so during that off-season, if you will, when the crop is either not yet planted or just very young, we're looking at, at more trend yields and, and yield estimates based on past performance. And you see that steady increase over time. But then by the time you get to August and beyond for corn and soybeans, NAS takes over, and those are survey-based estimates. They do base now more than ever some of their estimates also based on satellite vegetation health indices, as well as some of the weather that's going on. So, you know, more and more NAS is not just taking field estimates, but incorporating some other components as well. At this point, a lot of the emphasis is still on the field reports 
and weather up to this point. But I think as we go forward and into the future, there'll be more of that estimate will be driven by short-term expectations as well. But we always tell people we just assume normal weather from here on out. But you know, sometimes that's maybe not a little realistic. A year like 2012, everybody could see the disaster that was brewing. And so I think NAS did incorporate some of that into its yield estimates. But at the same time, it's a science that you really, you know, looking forward, there's still a lot of uncertainty on how things can play out. Today's varieties are much more adapted to both heat and drought than they were, say, back a generation or two ago. So for the time being, we'll say normal from here to the future, but we do assess everything going into it up to the present, so up till today. And that'll be true with the crop production report coming out in August. It'll be everything valid through August 1st. You'll notice on there it's it's basically valid through what's happening to the point we're talking right now. And then um, for the future, even though we assume that weather conditions might be a little bit better for the rest of the summer, you're not going to really see that reflected in the crop production report. Yes, the August WASD is always one that's anxiously anticipated across the country, and this year will be no different. Everybody's going to be eyeing up in particular if and to what degree there are yield changes on both corn and beans. Because I think back to your point that you made earlier here, everyone is anxious to see how the technology, the agronomic practices, the breeding programs that have you know evolved and been developed in the last decade or so are able to stand up to some of the stress that we saw this year. And so I think all of us believe that we certainly are going to have a better crop than we would have had in 12, even if we had the same growing conditions, just because of better seed technology and, and better agronomics and better breeding. But yet there's part of us that, that you know, bases our expectations on what we know. And so it's going to be really interesting, I think, as we get towards harvest and we do actually start to see yields roll in. I think there's going to be a lot of anticipation around that, not just from the market, but from producers as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We tend to see today's varieties, seed varieties and genetics do better during cool droughts. So in other words, they're more adaptable to drought than they are high temperatures. And we've, other than last week, we've seen a relative absence of extreme heat in the Midwest this year. So that would suggest that crops may perform a little better than we initially expected. So it will be a very interesting August report for WASDE and crop production to see those field-driven estimates for the first time. Absolutely. Well, well, definitely, uh, everybody's going to be eagerly watching to see uh, adjustments that are made on the USDA front. And as we start harvest, even in some of the southern parts of the of the country, uh, everyone is looking towards some of that yield data. Brad, it's been a real pleasure to have you join us today. It's been a very interesting dialogue, and I know our listeners are going to love it. Uh, whether something that uh, producers and anyone involved in agriculture kind of... Uh, tends to pick up as a habit, maybe uh, as just a direct function of the impact that it has on their world. But if listeners would like to learn more about some of your insights about the U.S. Drought Monitor, where can they go to do so? Yeah, Drought Monitor is available on a number of sites, but our main site is hosted by the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, droughtmonitor.unl.edu. And from there, you can find hundreds and thousands of products related to the drought monitor as well. 
We also have our own Office of the Chief Economist website. And not only do we produce the WASD, but we also produce the weekly weather and crop bulletin, as well as some daily and weekly reports. There's a daily agricultural weather highlights. We have a weekly product that is agriculture and drought. So if you just go to the Office of the Chief Economist of the USDA, look under publications, you can find a lot of our work there. So I uh, encourage you to go take a look if you haven't before. And just like you guys and all the listeners will be waiting to see how things play out here over the next few weeks for the Midwest and for the Great Plains as we head into harvest. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us today, Brad. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, feel free to subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, or hit the like button. Thanks to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's production. At EverAg, we partner with every corner of the agriculture industry, from dairy to livestock, crops, and agribusiness, to deliver intelligent supply chain and risk management solutions. We are EverAg, everything agriculture. Learn more at www.ever.ag/everything.